Good afternoon, everyone. Doctrinal disputes among those who profess to be of a particular religion or other system of belief are common and have been for millennia. This applies not only to those who profess to be Christians, but among those of other religions or political or other belief systems. As Christians, how are we to handle doctrine and how should we deal with disputes over doctrine? This is what I want to discuss in today's sermon. First, perhaps we need to ask ourselves, is doctrine really all that important to begin with? Often the reasoning is when doctrinal disputes come up that doctrine really isn't all that important, but perhaps we ought to ask, does it really matter what you believe? Why can't we why can't we just mind our own business and try to get along with others no matter what our differences in belief? Actually, there's a lot to be said for minding your own business and striving to get along with others, even those with whom you don't agree, and we'll discuss that a little more later on. But first, let's explore the, explore the question of the importance of doctrine. Jesus appeared on earth as a teacher. His teaching activities are referred to far more often in the Gospels than any other aspect of his ministry. His teaching, that is, his doctrine, was a key element which set him apart from other religious leaders of the time. In Matthew 7 and verse 28, it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we see that one of the things that marked Jesus and separated himself from others was the doctrine that he taught. The word doctrine or teaching, as it is translated in the New King James Version and other English translations, is from Didache, which means doctrine or teaching. And it was because of his doctrines that the Pharisees sought to kill him. Notice in John 8, verse 37, for example, <clears throat> John 8, verse 37, Jesus said, I know you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And there are several other scriptures that also mention that the opponents of Jesus, the opponents of his teachings, sought to kill him because of his teachings in verse 40 here it says now you seek to kill me a man who's told you the truth you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth so it was because of his doctrines doctrines that were different from the doctrines that were being taught by the religious leaders of the day 
that those same religious leaders sought to kill Jesus. Later on, when the apostles were sent forth to preach the gospel, they also were persecuted because of the doctrines that they taught. Over in Acts chapter 5 and verse Acts chapter 5 and verse 25, we read, this was where some of the apostles had been brought before the council, the supreme council among the Jews, consisting of their religious and political leaders. And in verse 25, they said, Did we not strictly, strictly command you not to teach in this name, that is, in the name of Jesus, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our Father, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins and we are his witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him when they heard this they were furious and plotted to kill them so here the apostles were being beaten and persecuted some of them were thrown into prison others were later killed, and eventually all of the apostles were martyred for the things that they taught with the possible exception of John. But it was because of the doctrines that they taught that they were being persecuted. And Jesus had warned that the message, that as the message of the gospel was proclaimed, those involved in doing the work of the gospel would in fact be hated and persecuted over in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16 Matthew 10 and verse 16 Jesus said to his disciples behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you, now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And so it has been down through the ages that those who have proclaimed the gospel have often been persecuted and hated and, in many cases, martyred. We read in Scripture that Christ's disciples are sanctified by belief in the truth. To be sanctified means to be separated, to be set apart for God's purpose, as the term is used in the New Testament. And 
in John 17, where Jesus was praying to the Father. John 17, beginning with verse 14. Jesus said in this prayer of his disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we are sanctified, we are made separate from the world by the truth, the truth that we believe, the truth that we teach by the doctrines that we hold fast to. And it is that truth that not only separates us from the rest of mankind, but Rejecting or believing the truth is what enables us to be uh, candidates for ultimate salvation. Doctrine is one key factor which divides and separates the true disciples of Jesus from others, but it also opens up to us the path of salvation. And... Notice in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. <clears throat> Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you to, sal chose you to salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Notice that we are sanctified for salvation, separated for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In other words, believing the truth is a part of what separates us for the salvation that God has purposed for us and for mankind. And as Paul wrote here, it was God's purpose from the very beginning to choose for salvation those who would believe the truth and act on it and there are a number of scriptures that reflect this one of them is over in Mark chapter 16 verse 15 Mark 16 verse 15 Jesus said to his disciples go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature that is every person every human being and he said he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. So those who believe the gospel, the message, who believe the truth, the doctrines that are taught concerning the gospel message are to be saved. Now, of course, belief 
implies that you also yield to God's commandments and what the gospel commands us to do. So, doctrine is not something that we can safely ignore or take lightly just so we can go along to get along. Doctrine is one of the factors that will make the difference between ultimately perishing or having salvation in God's kingdom. Since doctrine is necessary, that is, that it is a part of what is required, believing the true doctrine of the Bible for our sanctification and ultimate salvation, and we must believe the true doctrines of the Bible as we just read, in order to have salvation, it follows that we must be able to discern the difference between true doctrine and false doctrine. And we must embrace the truth and we must reject that which is false. We are to reject false doctrine. But how is one to know what is true doctrine as opposed to what is false? The only way that you can actually know the difference is to carefully test that which is taught to determine if it's true or if it's false or if it's perhaps partially true and partially false. And this is a responsibility that each one of us has and no one can relieve you of that responsibility, of your responsibility as an individual believer to test the doctrines that are being taught, to determine if what is being taught is the truth or if it is false doctrine. Now, some have had the idea that you examine the doctrines of a church before you make a commitment to that church or its belief system, but once you're baptized, you no longer ask questions. You just believe whatever the ministry tells you to believe. And this isn't just a, an isolated idea that is found with a few people. This is actually the way most people that are members of various churches think. They're willing to accept whatever they are taught by their church because they are committed to that particular organization. And they're more committed to an organization or a society, a group of people that they associate with, they regard as friends, and so forth. They're more committed to that than they are to the truth. And quite often people either are afraid to question what is taught or they're just not interested in testing and proving what is taught. It's more comfortable for them to just float along and accept whatever they're told and not make waves and not be faced with the possibility that they might have to stand for something other than going along with whatever their organization teaches. 
If you believe that you can just quit proving the truth once you've made a commitment and are in a particular organization, that that relieves you of any obligation to continue to prove the truth of what is being taught, then that is a formula for deception. If you take that approach, you almost certainly will wind up being deceived somewhere along the way. I was told that someone, I don't remember who it was exactly, I don't even remember who told me this, but someone among one of the Church of God groups, when issues were being raised about various doctrines, remarked to the effect, as long as the ministers don't teach against the Sabbath, that's all that matters. So the idea is is as long as the Sabbath is being taught, then it doesn't matter what else may be taught. They're not going to bother themselves with either proving the truth or falsehood of it, or even if they don't believe it, that's not going to affect their loyalty to that particular organization. You might want to consider something, though, in that regard. Jesus was actually accused by his enemies of breaking the Sabbath. And he was accused of teaching his followers to profane the Sabbath. Notice in Mark chapter 2 and verse 23, Mark 2 and verse 23, now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to them, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, get the picture of what was happening. They were, it was on the Sabbath. They were walking through a field of ripe grain. And as they were walking, some of the disciples, or it says the disciples, began to grab a head of grain as they were walking along and take the grain and eat it. And the Pharisees said, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus was permitting his disciples to break the Sabbath, to profane the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. Now, there's no law in Scripture that would make unlawful the plucking of grain heads on the Sabbath and eating them as one walked through a field. But this was a law of their own devising that the Pharisees had promulgated. Their teaching or doctrine on this point was in conflict with that of Jesus. And they accused Jesus of permitting his disciples to profane the Sabbath. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that too was considered a violation of the Sabbath. And in one case, after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, as we read in John chapter 5, verse 18, John 5, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Notice the accusation was that Jesus had broken the Sabbath. He had broken the Sabbath by healing a person. And in a later incident, Jesus had healed a man of blindness, 
as we read in John chapter 9, in John 9 and verse 16, after this incident where Jesus had healed a man of blindness, a man who had been blind from birth, in verse 16 it says, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So, among the accusations, in fact, some of the primary accusations that were leveled against Jesus Christ is that he was not a faithful Sabbath keeper, that he profaned the Sabbath, that he allowed his disciples to profane the Sabbath. So, if your criteria for truth is that someone does not teach against the, against the Sabbath and you were willing to accept the criticisms aimed at Jesus you might have condemned Jesus along with many of the other Jews and especially the leaders the religious leaders among the Jews of his day now the fact is Jesus did not really break the Sabbath there's nothing in the Bible that would condemn someone for healing on the Sabbath. In fact, it is fully consistent with what the Sabbath is all about. But nevertheless, Jesus had violated man-made rules about Sabbath keeping, and he had been accused of breaking the Sabbath. And those who incited the murder of Jesus Christ were themselves Sabbath keepers, or at least they claimed to be Sabbath keepers, and they had falsely condemned Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. Your understanding of doctrine has to go far beyond a superficial conception of Sabbath keeping if you want to avoid being deceived. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. This is John 8, verse 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. To keep the words of Jesus, the words of the Bible, you have to know what those words are. You can't keep the words of Jesus if you don't know what Jesus' words are. You can't keep his teachings if you don't understand his teachings. And what that means is that you have to study. You have to study diligently the teachings, the scriptures, to learn what the Bible itself teaches. That's why we're called disciples, students, because we're to be studying, we're to be learning what the Bible itself teaches. And you can't just leave that up to someone else to do for you. You have to understand and know yourself what the Bible teaches. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 16, Paul wrote to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or rightly understanding the word of truth. But notice it says, Be diligent. Be diligent to rightly and correctly divide or understand the word of truth and that applies not ju just to ministers it really applies to all of us the standard of truth is what 
is the Word of God. It is not what some person who has a title says is the Word of God. And that is a critical distinction that we must comprehend. The standard of truth is the Word of God. It is not just what some person who has a title says is the Word of God. A title like apostle or evangelist or priest or some other religious title, that does not determine what the truth is, what someone who has that kind of a title says. The standard of truth and the only proper standard of truth is what is the word of God. Notice in Revelation 2 and verse 2, Jesus is speaking to his church Revelation 2 and verse 2, and he says to the church, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Yes, we're to test those who claim religious titles. And we test them by examining their teachings as well as their conduct, to see how it stacks up against the Word of God, the Scriptures. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14, it says, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. His end will be according to their works. So the standard of truth is not what someone with a title says it is. It is what is actually the word of God from the scriptures. The standard of truth is what is the word of God. It is not what a church teaches. Some have taken the view that what's important is what a church teaches. And that is their standard of truth what a church teaches in its literature. And they look to church publications as well as to the what the minister, the individual ministers themselves say, and that is their standard of truth. If the church teaches it, then that is truth in their view. But the standard of truth is not what a church teaches. The Bible does not teach that. The standard of truth is the word of God. Jesus said in a prayer to the, to the Father, as we read earlier in John 17, verse 17, your word is truth. Your word is truth. The, the word of God is truth. The word of God preserved in the scriptures is the truth. A person I know was told by a minister in another church of God fellowship that he was not to use any scripture which might cause someone to doubt what the church teaches. He was not to use scriptures which would cause someone to doubt what the church teaches. In other words, what the church teaches has more authority than what the scriptures teach. And you're not to use any scriptures which would cause someone to doubt something that the church is teaching. He was also told that even if he did not believe that a teaching of the church was true, 
he was to teach it anyway as though he believed it 100%. In other words, you're not to doubt anything that the church teaches. And even if you do doubt it, even if you don't believe it's the truth, you're still supposed to teach it if you're in that position of teaching or speaking publicly in the church. Even if you believe something is a lie, you're supposed to teach it as though you believe it 100%. That's what he was told by ministers in that church. And remember, this is a, a church of God organization. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16 and verse 6, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. At first, his disciples did not understand what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about bread, literal bread. But when Jesus explained further, we read in Matthew 16, verse 12, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice that Jesus had told his disciples to beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day among the Jews. Their doctrines were the officially sanctioned teachings of the church of the time, if you want to put it in those terms. That was the church. Their teachings, their doctrines were the teachings of the church, so to speak. And yet Jesus condemned many of their teachings and told his disciples to beware of them. Those same leaders opposed the message of Jesus and they opposed the message of his apostles. In Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20 it says, To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That tells us that the word, the words of Scripture, the law and the testimony, those are the words which are the standard of truth. And if anyone, whoever he might be, or she for that matter, is teaching contrary to that, then it's because there is no light in them because they're teaching falsehood. In Acts 17, verse 10, Acts 17, verse 10, it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. There were more, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Notice they did not just accept what they were told, but they searched the scriptures. Now, these were people who of a Jewish background, and what they were being told was also quite different from many of the things that they had been taught. And yet, they received the word with a readiness of mind, but they didn't just blindly follow it they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether they were being taught the truth or falsehoods 
And so the standard of truth, again, is the word of God, the scriptures. It's not just what a church or somebody says is the truth. The standard of truth is the word of God. It is not what self-appointed, unlearned, supposed Bible experts claim is the truth. All sorts of unsound false ideas have been promulgated over the years by such individuals. People who are not ministers necessarily, although they might be ministers, but individuals who make false claims about this, that, or some other teaching or doctrine. Some people automatically believe what a minister tells them, no matter how foolish or contrary to fact or sound understanding of the scriptures the teaching might be. On the other hand, others more or less automatically latch on to foolish ideas of novice or deranged so-called Bible scholars, no matter how shallow and misleading the teaching is. Again, the only way you can escape deception is exercise caution. Study the Bible diligently. Prove from the Bible the accuracy of any teaching. And pray for understanding and spiritual wisdom. Also be careful with whom you associate. If you're spending a lot of time with deceivers, the chances are very good that you will become one of them. Paul contended with such deceivers during his ministry. This is mentioned several places in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, he wrote to Timothy, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some of them that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So here were people who were influencing some of the brethren in the church who claim to be, te- to, to be teaching teachers of the law but they did not understand either the things they were saying or that they were affirming. In other words, they were making false claims about the scriptures. They were teaching falsehoods and calling it truth and there were people who, who were being in danger of being led away into error by such people. And this is not an isolated case. This has happened probably in every generation. It certainly happened in our day as it did in the days of the original apostles. Peter warned about those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. In Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter wrote, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation is also our beloved Paul, a beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, 
as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So notice he warned the brethren to beware of people who twist the scriptures. People who are untaught and unstable. People who have unsound ideas about the scriptures. He went on to say, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. So we are warned in Scripture to beware of such false teachers lest we be led away into error. Paul had preached to the Corinthians and established the church in Corinth. He and other apostles had preached to them about the resurrections. But later to the Corinthians, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is preached, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So what Paul was pointing out is that he had come preaching the gospel and other ministers had preached to the Corinthians about the resurrections as well as other facets of the gospel. And yet, here were people among the Corinthians who were saying to them that there is no resurrection of the dead, contrary to what the message was from the, not only Paul, but other ministers that had taught them what the gospel is. Now, Some of the people were being misled by this teaching that there is no resurrection. And so Paul discusses this subject further in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he warns them in verse 33. Verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now notice carefully what he said here. He said he warns them that hanging around with people who are evil, people who are teaching evil doctrines, false doctrines, will corrupt you. If, if you keep that kind of company, it will corrupt you. What that tells us is that we need to be care- very careful whom, with whom we associate ourselves. In fact, this is a critical factor in avoiding deception. And he went on to say, awake to righteousness. Some do not have the knowledge of God, he said. And he said, I speak this to your shame. In other words, it was expected that 
the Corinthians, people who were in the church of God, should have the knowledge of God. How would one have that knowledge? Well, he would have that knowledge by knowing what is in the Scriptures. And so it is absolutely critical and essential that we be students of the Bible, that we be learning what the Bible actually teaches through our own diligent study of the Scriptures. And furthermore, if we hang around with people who are deceivers, then we ourselves are likely to become one of them. So we must study the Bible diligently and be be very careful about drawing conclusions which cannot be sustained from a careful reading of all the scriptures on a given subject. And there are any number of subjects that people have come up with with all kinds of weird ideas about, false ideas that are contrary to what the Bible itself teaches. You need to be careful that you're not drawn into believing such false teachings. That means when we must guard our minds. We must guard our minds. Those of you listening here to me today have been instructed in a rich store of knowledge that few others have received. Every one of you has, has been instructed in invaluable teachings that few others have received. And the same truths, however, are available to others who are not here today who are prepared to receive them. And there may be other people who will hear this sermon later who may be prepared to receive the truth. I certainly hope so. But it would be a shame to cast away the truth for some perceived temporary gain, whatever that might be. And people often have been more than willing to cast away the truth for some perceived gain. Maybe, maybe they have cast away the truth to remain comfortable in their little social niche in their church or religious organization. Maybe they've cast away the truth to avoid persecution or because they simply did not want to be regarded as different from everybody else. Some have cast away the truth because they did want to be different from anybody else or others. And they thought by believing something foolish that would make them different. There are various reasons that people cast away the truth. But you might want to ask how much is your eternal life worth? If you value the idea of being in God's kingdom, it would behoove us to carefully guard our minds from deception, from whatever quarter that that deception might come. Whether it's from a church, whether it's from people who have a religious title or people who don't have a religious title. Deception can come from all sorts of places. And so we have to guard our minds. This is critical. 
to guard our minds. In Proverbs 16, verse 23, Proverbs 16, verse 22, rather, not 23. It says, Understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it. Understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it. This is how critical it is to understand the truth. It is a, it can be the, literally the difference between life and death. Goes on to say, but the instruction of fools is folly. So, we need to guard our minds. Understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it. We need to pray for understanding and seek understanding. In Proverbs 4 and verse 20, beginning with verse 20, Proverbs 4 beginning with verse 20, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Now notice what he's saying here. He's saying, pay attention to this. Pay attention. Listen. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence. In other words, keep your heart or guard your heart, guard your mind with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Basically the same thing we put in different words. Guard your mind. Keep your heart, guard your mind with all diligence, it says. That means you've got to work at it. Being a Christian is not something that you can do in a lazy or careless manner and expect to do it properly. Being a Christian requires work. It requires effort. It requires study. Just like if you're going to college to get a degree, I don't know about colleges today, but at least... Probably some colleges still require students to actually study to get a a decent grade. And if you want to pass the test of life as a Christian, you must study. That means you've got to take the time to read the Bible, to study it diligently, so that you can know what the truth is, be able to discern, discern truth from error. It also means you need to labor in prayer. Asking God for understanding and wisdom. So we need to guard our minds lest we be led away into error. We also need to be willing to change when shown we are wrong. Not willing to change just for the sake of change, but be willing to change when it is proven that you are wrong. Now, you or I may have learned a great deal of valuable knowledge, but none of us knows everything by any stretch of the imagination. And some things we may think we know at times may, in fact, be wrong. There are many things that I have believed in the past that I've had to 
learn were not true. Things that I believed about the Bible, things I believed about religion that I had to learn were not true. When you're shown very clearly from the scriptures that something you've believed is not true, you should be willing to change. And many people grow up believing all kinds of false teachings and false traditions concerning the Bible or religion. Quite often the main impediment to their learning and growth is a simple refusal to abandon false teachings in favor of the truth. They want to cling to false ideas. They're unwilling to admit that they could be wrong or that their church or their organization, their ministers could have been wrong about things that they were taught. Others sometimes throw the truth overboard when they have known the truth and adopt error and will not be dissuaded from foolish and error-laden ideas that they've adopted no matter how much proof is presented exposing the truth. And I've dealt with such people. We must be willing to prove all things, as the scripture says in First Thessalonians 5 and verse 21, Paul wrote, test all things or prove all things it is as, it is, as it is in the King James Version. And he said, hold fast what is good. He said, prove all things, hold fast what is good. He didn't say hold fast to what is not good. And if you prove something and it doesn't stand up to the test of proof, then you should reject that and believe the truth. We should hold fast to what is good, what is true from the perspective of Scripture, but we must be flexible enough in mind to cast aside error when it is exposed and grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. You can't grow in the grace and knowledge of the truth if you're not willing to admit error. In Second Peter 3 and verse 18, Peter wrote, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this was just upon the heels of him warning about being led away into error by false teachings. But he said also we must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory of both now and forever. Amen. A willingness to admit error, to admit that you have been wrong, not just that someone else has been wrong, but that you have been wrong, requires humility. It requires intellectual honesty. It requires a diligence in making inquiry. It also requires caution. Before you decide that something you have believed is false, you need to make very sure that it is false. Or if it can be true, proven true in the face of criticism, then 
you should be able to prove that as well. But you have to have a mind that is honest. You have to be diligent in your inquiry. You have to have a mind surrendered to God and to his word, lest you be deceived. Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. So each of us needs to ask himself, am I willing to learn? Am I willing to be taught from God's word? and meekly submit to it when the truth is clearly and convincingly presented and no reasonable objections can be made to the truth of what is being taught. And this can apply to anybody, ministers or people who are not ministers. It applies to all of us. We should be praying, in fact, for God to correct us where we need to be corrected as we pray that God will preserve us in his truth. Jeremiah 10 and verse 24, we read, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So we could be praying in a similar manner, that God will correct us, that he will show us where we're wrong, not only in our conduct, but also in our beliefs, and help us to correct anything that we believe that may not be true. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, Paul wrote, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. We're to stand fast and hold the traditions that which the Greek word means that which is passed on in other words the things that are taught whether by word or our epistle the traditions the teachings here the doctrines are, are those that are preserved in the word of God That is what we're to stand fast and hold on to. Not false ideas, not erroneous ideas, but the true teachings of the Word of God. That's what we're to cling to. Now we might ask, who sets doctrine in the church? Who determines what the truth doctrines are? Is it some human person who happens to be at the head of some church organization or other? Or who is it? 
is it is it by a majority vote of the members or does each person just decide for himself what the truth is the true doctrines are those that are preserved in the word of god the bible the doctrines of the church are set by god through jesus christ jesus christ is the logos the word the spokesman he is the one through whom God has spoken to us. He is the one who has established doctrine and set doctrine in the church. As we read in Hebrews 1 and verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So we're told here that God has spoken through the prophets. Now, it was actually God who did the speaking. So it was his word that was being taught. But he has, in these last days, it says, spoken through his son. That is the doctrine of the church. What God himself has spoken through the prophets and through his son, Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 1, verse 19, Peter wrote, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, by which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Notice he said, the prophecies of Scripture are what we ought to be looking to. And they're not of any private interpretation. In other words, we're not to accept what somebody says is, well, I have the inside dope on what this means and this is what, it, what its interpretation is, as people often do. And they twist and pervert scriptures in a way that is not in accordance with how the Bible explains itself. The Bible interprets itself. It is its own interpreter. And so to understand scripture, we go to other scriptures. Because doctrine is set in the, in the church by God through his word. John wrote in 2 John chapter 1, verse 9, 2 John 1, verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Notice what doctrine it is. He said, does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. He didn't say the doctrine of a church or the doctrine of this, that, or somebody else who claims some religious title. He said, whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. If someone comes to you and brings any doctrine other than the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Scriptures, by the way, Christ endorsed the entirety of the Scriptures, including the Old Testament, if someone brings to you some other doctrine, it says, do not receive that person. In other words, 
do not receive him as a brother. Do not treat him as a member of the church or someone that you should pay heed to because he is bringing a doctrine other than what Christ himself has established in the church. Now, given these things that we have been discussing, we're also told that we are to avoid unprofitable disputes over doctrine. We are to avoid unprofitable disputes over doctrine. We are instructed to avoid getting into disputes or foolish debates about doctrine. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23, Paul wrote, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, as we read earlier, I believe, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. The church of God is not a debating society. That's not why we're here, to, to debate doctrine. We've had some people come along who, who think that's what the church is supposed to be doing and, and that our services ought to be uh, forums where various individuals can give their opinions about what, what this, that, or some other doctrine should be. And that's, that's how we ought to approach our services. That's not what the church is. That's not how services ought to be conducted. The church is not a debating society. Ministers ought to be qualified to teach before they're made ministers, and they must be able to teach the truth of God's word faithfully and effectively, as Paul implies here in what is written. But they're specifically told to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. They're also told to avoid quarreling over these matters. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, Paul wrote of himself and other ministers, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful or that one be found faithful. In other words, a minister is required to be faithful. He's held to, to that standard by God. God will hold him accountable for faithfully teaching the truth of his word. Now, ministers should be approachable and open to being asked questions. And they should be able to explain the Bible in a way that is comp comprehensible. But they should avoid getting embroiled in endless controversies over matters of doctrine, especially doctrines which have been thoroughly explained. I, I wrote a lengthy paper on the Passover actually a book on the Passover some years ago, and a man wrote to me asking questions that were plainly answered 
from the scriptures in the paper. Basically, he simply wanted to argue about things which are quite clearly taught from the scriptures. And I was not going to be drawn into that kind of useless and unprofitable and time-wasting activity of arguing about things that had already been explained. A spirit of contention and debate is a work of the flesh. Galatians 5 and verse 19. Galatians 5 and verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. A spirit of contention, of dissension, of wanting to argue just for the sake of arguing, that is a work of the flesh. And that's what some people want to do. They just want to argue and argue and argue no matter how much evidence is placed before them about some particular point of doctrine. Some people just want to argue. There are others quite often, especially new people in the faith who want to see others such as friends and relatives converted, so they begin to try to argue them into believing the truth. And they get into religious arguments with people who don't really want to hear what they have to say. Is this why? Should we try to convert others through arguing with them about the Bible? Now we need to understand it is our responsibility as a church to proclaim the gospel to the world as a witness, even though the world does not want to hear the message. It's our duty to proclaim that message. It's a very unpopular message. Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So this was the commission that Jesus gave to the church was to preach the gospel and to teach thing to, to teach people who were responsive to obey the commandments. We already read in Mark 16 where Jesus had told his apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And there were others who came along who worked with them in that responsibility, and the entire church was supporting those efforts. The public preaching of the gospel is done through the ministry, and in the case of our particular church, it's done through our our publications and other means, but it is a collective effort. The ministers are charged with the public preaching of the gospel, But we all have a part in supporting the effort of preaching the gospel. In Romans 10 verse 14, Paul wrote, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, speaking of Jesus Christ, and how shall they believe in him 
of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So it is the duty of the ministry to preach the gospel, to make the message known or available. It's also a reality that many people have come into the church through the influence of friends, of acquaintances, or of relatives. On the other hand, many have been estranged. Many people have come into the church of God have been estranged from former friends and even family members as a result of believing the truth. So, there's a, a balance that we need to reach. We must not be ashamed of our faith, knowing that we may suffer persecution because of it. We should not be trying to hide our faith. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. So we should not be ashamed of Christ or our faith. Whoever denies me before men, said Jesus, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So we're not to be ashamed of our faith not to be ashamed of Christ in our commitment to Christ, even though it may lead to persecution. But we're also told that we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, as Jesus said in the same chapter of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 16. We should exercise graciousness, wisdom, and discretion in how we deal with people. Graciousness, wisdom, and discretion. In Psalm 112, verse 5, it says, A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. And there are various ways that Individuals can be involved in promoting the gospel without preaching at others or haranguing them. For example, some have posted links to sermon or articles on their own social networking pages. That's just one way. But as many have learned by experience, it's generally not a good idea to enter into disputes with your friends, relatives, and acquaintances over religion. 
Most people, and you're probably included, do not appreciate others trying to impose their religious views on them. How would you like it if someone came to you and wanted to impose his religious ideas on you and wanted to argue about it? I've had people show up at my door who were interested in sharing with me their religious ideas. And frankly, I'm not interested in listening to them. I already know what their teachings are, and I don't agree with their ideas, or at least many of their ideas. But if you take that approach, if you're trying to impose your religious views on others, then that will often create unnecessary offense and conflict. When Jesus was told by his disciples that the Pharisees were offended by his teachings, he said, let them alone. Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. But he's, notice he said, those who were offended at his, his teachings, they were to be left alone. They were not to be harangued into accepting or believing what was taught. And as we read earlier, we're to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Even Paul, a minister of the gospel, when he was publicly preaching, as he did, often ran into opposition. But even he went only so far in disputing with those who were unwilling to hear. For example, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, says he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So notice that first he publicly spoke in the synagogue in this particular place of forget which city that was at the moment, but anyway, he had spoken there. At first he was received graciously, but later there was resistance, and so he withdrew those who were willing to listen with a ready mind to a private place and taught them privately. And so that's why we have our services privately is because we are teaching those who are prepared to listen and learn. Not that you necessarily have to automatically agree with everything that's said here. We don't expect you to automatically agree. We expect you to prove whether what we say is the truth or not. The chance of you convincing someone of the truth of the Bible who is not open to receiving it is slim to none. Those who have become converted partly through the influence of members have generally not been harangued into it. Usually they see the person's example. They ask some questions. They begin to become interested of their own volition. And then eventually they may make progress toward conversion. And so the best way to influence others is to set a good example in your personal conduct. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
in heaven. Notice the way to let your light shine in this case was by living the right example. Paul wrote to Titus, this is a faithful saying, and this is Titus 3 and verse 8. Those things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So we need to do our best to live at peace with others, as we mentioned earlier, mind our own business, try to get along with other people as well as we can without compromising the truth. In Romans 12, verse 18, Paul said, If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, and verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe greatly glorify God in the day of visitation. And you can be sure that if you're living by God's word, people will notice. And then they may ask you questions. If someone asks you about your faith, then you should be ready to answer confidently. And you should be able to do that. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, Peter said, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, if you can't explain why you believe what you believe, if you can't explain a particular doctrine clearly and effectively, perhaps you don't know that doctrine as well as you ought or as well as you might have thought you knew it. So, in summary... Respect sound doctrine as the truth by which you are sanctified. Reject false doctrine. Be willing to change when you are wrong. Remember that Christ sets doctrine in the church. Avoid foolish disputes over doctrine and live as a light to others, ready to defend and explain your beliefs clearly and logically when asked about them. These steps will help you considerably in reaching the goal of the kingdom of God.